0: These policies devalue my life and prioritize industry's bottom line, and that is unacceptable.
1: I'm Daniel. I'm Damon. And welcome to Climate Change
2: Makers, presented by Elevate Energy. For 20 years now, Elevate Energy has been building equity through climate action by improving quality of life for underserved communities, by helping them save money, improve their environment, and access opportunities in the workforce that will be a part of tackling climate change.
1: As they move into the next decade of their work, they're looking to learn from their fellow community members who are equitably transforming the environmental legacy of their homes, neighborhoods, cities, and futures. And
2: this year, they brought the two of us in to help. So we are here, have no fear. AirGuard has been partnering with Elevate Energy over these last eight episodes, talking to some of Illinois' most impactful environmental justice visionaries who have been working to build a more equitable and sustainable world and explore what ideas got their work, which strategies have been effective, and what advice they have for Elevate Energy as the organization works to put people and the planet first in their fight to build equity through climate action.
1: This eighth episode is our final episode, and it's been such a pleasure having these conversations with these climate change makers, these environmental justice workers. Today's episode is no different. We got the opportunity to kick it with the one and only Olga Bautista.
2: Olga gave us some really important stories about the Southeast Side Coalition to ban Pet Coke. Southeast side is a part of the city that often goes forgotten. Many people don't even recognize that it's there or that it's part of Chicago's municipality. Um, and I think in a lot of ways that's reflected in the political economy and the ways in which these industrial polluters have really been harming this community. But Olga gave us some really amazing stories about the resilience and the community driven resistance to not only stop these harms, but to create new, healthier dynamics.
1: Olga Bautista is one of the founders of the Chicago Southeast Side Coalition to Ban Petcoke, made up of residents from the Southeast Side who have come together to rid the neighborhood from the fugitive dust from Petcoke stored in their neighborhood. She is also the community planning manager at the Alliance for the Great Lakes, where she leverages her experience as an environmental justice organizer to advance the Alliance's green infrastructure initiatives and clean water priorities. She's no nonsense. She's fantastic. Such a joy to get to talk with her on this final episode of Climate Change Makers. We start the conversation with the same question we start every episode with In this time, this moment, this season, how is the world treating her and how is she treating the world?
0: Uh, that's such a great question, actually. You know, like all of the opening questions <laughs> that we can. You could. know, we're coming for your weak
1: ass icebreakers <laughs> yeah. out there, people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a very good icebreaker. Um, so I feel very lucky to um, have been weathering the pandemic, the uprisings, and all of the issues that are happening in my neighborhood with a lot of support from my family. My children are uh, doing well, and uh, we're taking a lot of precautions to keep our families safe. I'm just very Thankful that we're so lucky, and I've been trying to be um, that person for folks, you know, who maybe haven't been as lucky. Folks who need help um, during this crisis that we're find ourselves in. Um, been part of COVID response collective, a network here in the community to support families who are being hit hard. I think just like everybody, kind of taking it day by day. It's very hard to make plans like for next month or (laughs) next week because things keep getting shut down and then reopened and then shut down again um meetings have been canceled and then of course with the election you know that we just got over um last week there was probably about a good dozen meetings that were just canceled
1: (laughs) so it is it is a golden era of meeting cancellations (laughs)
0: it is a (laughs) golden era of eating gifts. Absolutely.
1: Uh, So that was all like people-based to some degree. How about the rest of the world? So the plants, the air, the water, the animals, all the other, the the molecules of other types. How is that part of the world treating you? And how are you trying to treat that part of the world?
0: Well, funny enough, uh, this weekend, we took our daughters to get hiking shoes uh, we live in a community that is industrial, residential, um, and also has, you know, in the last 20 years, um, has really been stepping up its game to protect the n- natural areas. So we have um, Big Marsh, Hegwish Marsh, Indian Ridge, we have the Burnham Greenway, uh, Eggers Grove. Um, And there's more. (laughs) And then there's Cal Park and other places. And we know that um, we can't go do the things that we would usually do because of the pandemic. Um, We're being very intentional about finding time and taking that time to go out and explore nature in our own backyard. Um, We've seen some eagles uh, recently Mm. in our... Our little excursions at Big Marsh and Indian Ridge. Um, we're two for two. The last two uh, outings that we've Damn. had, we got to see these eagles and the egrets, these beautiful white cranes.
1: Mm-hmm. That, With the long necks. Yes. They fly so beautifully. Oh my too. God. Yeah. So
0: graceful. My daughter found a little water snake and. Uh, yeah, this weekend when we went to Indian Ridge, there was so many crickets. Like every time we walk, we just mm-hmm. hear them jumping into the leaves and making these nice crunching sounds like as they're <laughs> clearing the path, you know, so we can walk <laughs> through. And and then we went and we threw some rocks into the, you know, Lake Calumet and <laughs> like spending that time outdoors is so important. Um, And I'm so, I feel so lucky to be able to enjoy it with my kids and it give us that break because we're so stuck on screens for everything. Right. So it's really nice to like disconnect and enjoy, you know, that the air, the wind, the, the critters (laughs) in this area Um, Mm -hmm. and also the beautiful waterways, right. The, Calumet River and of course, Lake Michigan,
2: yeah. yeah so so you mentioned time, and I want to be aware of time uh and really like establish the groundwork of all the amazing work that you do uh because I'm really excited to hear your perspective and and go a little bit deeper into like connecting the dots of all the the importance I think of the model that that you're you're organizing embodies and and Uh, presents as an example for all of us. So I'll take a step back of saying the most important concept of all movements for restoration, transformation, health is acknowledging harm. Uh, And what excites me most about your work is that one, it gets to the specifics of the harm almost better than any other movement organizing Hmm. I see of like, here is the science of it. Like here is the actual element that's harming our bodies. Um, So one, it's more specific, but two, it's also harm that gets invisibilized. I'm really proud to be in conversation with you as we're talking about changing the climate of our communities and environments, uh, because I think the legacy of your work is really an opening to how we can do it most effectively. So with that context, what are the harms that you see you're organizing most effectively addressing right now in your community?
0: It's public health. It's definitely public health. Um, We are in a situation where we have these polluters in our community. And in the past, there was like this social construct where there was like, yeah, there was pollution, but there was also jobs, you know, and people were able to pay their mortgages and send their kids to college and all the rest of it. Well, now those jobs are gone. But this area is still zoned for the dirtiest of the dirtiest of industries. Now we have a lot of sick people, and all of these stories that we hear all the time of people being sick with these like rare conditions, the doctors can't even say like what your life expectancy would be because they never have those uh, those kind of illnesses in young people and the mental health of the community, you know, when you have people in the community who Mm -hmm. are like, well, it's always been like that. Nothing's ever going to change. This is our lot in life. And to be so hopeless is part of the trauma that people are experiencing in this community. And then there's the young people who are Right now, you know, this pandemic has kind of forced all a lot of the young people who usually would be in universities or studying abroad or other things to be here throughout these last six months. And they have really shown up and shown out on the different environmental issues. And they are impatient. They want change to happen now. And we are, some of the OGs are just getting out of the way and like, Yes, you're right. Thank you for reminding us that there is no more time to be wasted. We have suffered enough. You know, they have seen, you know, people in their, in their families die of rare cancers, of heart disease, COPD. Uh, they don't want they want a different future. And they have really sh- shown us that, that, you know, we could make these demands and all this negotiating and things that are that is happening with different departments in the city of Chicago, or in the state, or the feds is uh, it's too slow. We need a change to happen now.
1: Mm. Well, I'm really excited to also talk about some of the, the ways that that urgency creates new tactics and new ways of organizing, but first, before we do that, I want to just kind of ground this in place a little bit, because you've mentioned some of the particularities of the way that this geographic area is zoned. Can you just set up a little bit, like, where does this area that you're talking about live? And when you say it's zoned for heavy industry or zoned for pol- these pollutants, what does that mean?
0: So we are on the southeast side of Chicago. Um, we border with Indiana and um, Lake Michigan uh, to, on the east, and we go up to the Bishop Ford on the west. Um so I would say, you know, from South Shore to South Chicago, to the east side neighborhood, all the way down to Hegwish, even like Oak Hill Gardens, which is a little bit just on the other side of the highway. But those are all areas that are being impacted by the polluters uh, in this region. Um, this area was once the hub for the steel mill industry in, in this region and a lot of buildings in the downtown and all the rest of it have been built from steel from here. And about 40 years ago, uh, when I was born, uh, is when those steel mills started to close. And it just decimated the community here. is um, a statistic that I saw in um, a book called Exit Zero over 600 um, workers who had died because of alcoholism, suicide and all these other impacts uh, from losing their job uh, within like 10 years after the steel mills closed. I mean, that is, it's a lot. It's a lot of people who have lost their lives. Um, There was like a neighborhood where you didn't have to leave here. You could do all your shopping here and it was entertainment. Everything was here and all of that's gone, but in its place, You know, the city tried to do things to rescue the economy of Chicago and created these zones that are called planned manufacturing districts to make sure that industry would still be able to come here and that it would be easier for them to come here. There's basically just like a checklist that they have to do. They don't have to let anybody know. They don't even have to let the aldermen know that they're coming in. And the the rules were so lax because the city wanted to uh, make sure that there was still um, an economic engine and and ways to generate uh, tax dollars.
2: Just hearing this history is like expanding my notion of environment. And I'm feeling this real contradiction that I would love to know how the different ways the community are understanding this tension of there is like the the biological, ecological environment that is being disrupted. But then there's also like the social environment that has these like economic facets that once there was this capital flight, right? Like the ways in which people can gather and move around and be placed was changed, right? Like it was an environmental shift. But I'm hearing these like two tensions of the work was unhealthy, the production was unhealthy for the community, but it was something that was like an economic dependency almost in, in, in a way. I think that's like a a a national and global tension that folks mm-hmm. are feeling of, you know, we need these jobs, we need work in the American imagination this large industrial manufacturing is like the vision of our healthy economy and like having enough labor market for people to be able to survive but like on a planetary and like in neighborhood level we are also seeing that this is like destroying our atmosphere and destroying our bodies right so i, I don't want to just like dump on how bleak things are but like how do you understand that contradiction or how do y'all as a community and, and as organizers shape the conversation to to hold that tension
1: And just an add on, how has that shifted over the last, uh, you know, 35, 40 years since it was that initial uh, extraction?
0: Yeah, well, I think even then there was still organizing. I met an old timer that was at George Washington High School during the time when the steel mills were here, who said he was part of a club that organized for for the environment. You know, so it it wasn't that it wasn't here. It was just it wasn't prominent enough. and this situation on the Southeast side of Chicago is happening all across the Great Lakes, all across the Rust Belt. There's all these swaths of land that have been abandoned by the industry. Industry has moved overseas um, and it's still polluting the atmosphere, still polluting the planet, right? It's just not happening here. A lot of people just have this idea that, you know, like the good old days, like we have to get back to those good old days, but those good old days and that type of industry was very harmful to the planet. It was very harmful to the people who lived around there and the workers themselves. Um, And there is a new um, subterranean fire, right, of like really led by young people who are learning about climate change at a very young age, like how we learn about, you know, recycle, reuse, you know, know, like Mm -hmm. the three R's. And they're learning about you know climate change and these massive storms you know impacting all these coastal uh, communities, and then the heat waves and the fires you know in the west. And I think that's what's changing is that we have this these this new generation of people who uh, understand the science very clearly. It, it is, and it's like we have no time. You know, we need a new vision we need to use things like uh hydroelectric power i heard that there are cities um on the west coast that even in their their plumbing system like in portland i believe um that they have turbines that you know the water is, com- mm-hmm. is rushing through underground all of us every day what if you put a turbine underneath there and right. is starts to generate energy for for that n- neighborhood or that house you know like There are so many things that can happen here, but you know our utility companies and these uh, old uh, industries, um, the oil industry, they stand to lose a lot, and they block it at every turn. And that is um, where, when they say like the rubber meets the road, right? Like we have all this science, all these young people building power. You have the Green New Deal. You have the Sunrise Movement. You have all these big groups fighting to change things. And it has to happen at every level of government. We have to do that here in the city. This is the city of Chicago. It's a global city. I want to be known for the community that was once a neighborhood that that was causing a lot of pollution. And it now is not just changing its way of operating in a way that's more sustainable, but it's also repairing harm that has been caused to this region and to this area, restoring the marshes, the natural areas, and putting people from this community to work in those kind of jobs. Cleaning up these areas and these communities like mine will produce jobs. You know, installing these turbines (laughs) in our sewer systems or in our water you know, like can produce jobs, all of that. And I think that if, if we, there's not a massive shift soon, you know, like we are in a lot of trouble.
1: So I I want to go back to something that you said, because I think it's a piece that gets left out of the conversation about that loss of jobs, which almost gets romanticized as a way of talking about the Midwest or talking about the Rust Belt. Um, And there's this idea that there was something and then there isn't anything anymore and what I think your work and what you've said really shows is that actually, like, just because the jobs leave doesn't mean that the impacts leave, right? So the harmful elements that are in the soil and in the water remain and the effects of that continue. As that fight has shifted over time from an economic facing argument to a like survival and almost moralistic argument, as well as environmental, have you found that that shift makes it easier or harder for community members to feel like they can plug in? Like, I could imagine it going both ways.
0: No, I, I see. I think um, back then, you know, like when workers would organize, you know, they had uh, the sense that, you know, their conditions will improve. Um, they still had a job and they still were able to to thrive. Um, but now that those jobs are gone, the way that, that we are organizing now is, you know, f- to fight for our lives and fighting against a system that is hell bent on killing us. Like, I think those people in power know that they're causing harm and they're just going to make as much money as they can (laughs) while like the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket. (laughs) And um, that is the problem is like there, you cannot negotiate like um, morally with these companies, but we can with our elected officials, right? We put them in power. We need them to come correct <laughs> and to uh, make sure that they're listening to us and not to these powerful entities, these you know, that are um, calling the shots right now, because it is our lives. And I think that um, That's what's happening here. I mean, even in the Southeast side, you know, there's like a new IPO, United Neighbors for the Tenth War, that has formed. And they are really showing up and showing that not only are we calling out these problems, but we're also going to run candidates that agree with our demands. And I think that is the shift that we're seeing right now, is that there is really nothing else to do. We have tried all of the things. We have negotiated. Yeah, you all have, have been
1: busy. We, yeah, yeah.
0: You know, and like our backs are against the wall and there really is no other way to move but forward. And we're doing that together with a whole new generation of young people who are really leading leading the way.
1: One of the best things about getting a little bit older is that I feel like I can finally say it. And there's a whole new generation coming (laughs) up behind it. Like, finally. For so long, I've been waiting
2: to say that. (laughs) I've been that generation. So I want to pick up on on this whole new generation. And, you know, I'm hearing kind of this, some repeated language around, like, there is newfound urgency. That's where I want to go, but I want to put a pin in something to get to later. Uh, So we're going to drop this little pin in something to get to later. And I'm really interested in you saying... The ways in which oil and other established industries are an active obstacle on like the hyper local level i think we understand that like you know in terms of like buying off senators or like disrupting what presidents say but i don't think we understand how like in local fights industry and like these large global multinational interests are disrupting local organizing work so that's something i'm putting a pin in uh, but but I want to get to this this urgency, this youthful spirit, and and if there is any new space or shape for messaging or things to be received or amplified further, and I want to ask it with nuance, because obviously this has been a, a a horrific tragedy that has we will never like fully recover from in terms of this pandemic. But I can imagine the language of public health. The language of the air quality, uh the language of like this is an emergency, we are all connected, right like I can imagine folks being able to connect the dots a little bit easier because public health is now the like number one political and economic focus of everybody, regardless of positionality so so is there ways in which the pandemic is in a almost tragic way, like creating new opportunity put to push harder
0: this. COVID situation uh, has been felt really hard here. Mm -hmm. We we lost one of our members to COVID
2: Mm, and
0: um, it's very difficult. We've had events and meetings that we were planning like uh, with the IEP and some of our key leaders were at funerals. We understand that a lot of the uh, communities that have been impacted, the ones that have the worst air quality, are not just getting the virus more, but are not able to survive because of the ailments, because of the COPD that is prominent here, because of the asthma, you know, and because of the jobs that the people in these communities have, but primarily in the service industry. They're exposed, they're working at the supermarkets, they're working with people, and they don't have the luxury to work from home. The way that it's impacted women. It has been incredibly difficult. We have taken a huge blow uh, on the, the Southeast side. The majority of the leaders here um, organizing for uh, better air quality and you know, leading the fights against pet coke and, and manganese and um, all these things are women who are caretakers who it's been very difficult to be able to Mm. keep working at the pace that we were working before the pandemic and had it not been for these young people (laughs) that have um, really understood that we would have been in a really tough tough spot but it definitely is impacting the way that the IEPA does their hearings right like none of these plans to bring general iron to this community or other planning plan you know initiatives None of those have slowed down because of the pandemic, but our bandwidth has definitely been impacted. So uh, we had to train people how to get onto Zoom before key meetings with um, elected officials or with the Department of Public Health or with the IPA. And it's been a very heavy lift for us.
1: Mm. I want to focus on what you just said about who's been leading the fight. And it is so consistent with the ways that, you know, in in my work, I've overlapped with the community that you are a part of and in many ways a leader of, which at least in the forms that I've seen has primarily not just been women, but, you know, caretakers of children, moms, you know, that urgency feels so immediate, I'd imagine. Maybe this is a good time to just give a little context for kind of how that coalition came together to take a step back. Um And then coupled with that, looking at how environmental justice organizing works overall what feels different about the approach that that y'all brought and is there anything that you feel like basically damn near everybody else should be doing that y'all have figured out
0: (laughs) i think that it took us a long time to realize that we are experts too Mm -hmm. we are experts in our own lived experience and a lot of the things that have um Changed policies, you know, that have changed here didn't happen because there was an inspector from the city who saw some red flag. You know, it was moms who were pushing the strollers and taking their kids to school who noticed black soot (laughs) on windowsills, Mm. on sidewalks, in the dog water bowl, in the backyard pool. You know, it was everyday people who see stuff. Falling off of trucks. And before we would just look the other way, but now, you know, we have a lot of information about what is actually happening along the Calumet River here in the southeast side. You know, we have about four bridges that connect here in the community and a lot of trains that pass through here. I mean, there's a daily occurrence that you get stopped by a train. Sometimes or a, or a boat, you know, and sometimes these boats are are huge, but for a long time, we weren't thinking about what's on those ships, what's on those trains? Where is it coming from? Where is it going? What's it for? And we have a much better understanding about what those things are. We know that a lot of that material is actually very harmful and very toxic. And I think that that is the difference. you know, I think in the past, it was more anecdotal. And we thought like, oh yeah, that smells really terrible. Or there's this a lot of shiny stuff, like, you know, coating the clothes that are being hung outside to dry. Old timers would say things like this, you know, and, but they never didn't, they didn't know what that was. And now we do. That's how we've been able to flip the script here is to say, my life matters. These policies Devalue my life and prioritize industry's bottom line. And that is unacceptable. It is unacceptable. Mm. I think this is something that is um, not happening just here in the Southeast side, it's happening all across the country. And, you know, it's like a family affair, right? Like I am doing the work that I'm doing as a mom, but my children are also learning these things you know, through me, but also in school, and they're learning about climate change. And I think that is the change that we're seeing right now. And like the, this um, sense of urgency, um, you know, because we're seeing so many sick people, and we're tired of it. And we're like, not one more. This is very apparent right now, with the the work uh, that we're doing around the General Iron relocation. Not only is it relocating a clouded polluter that has been around for 120 years here in the city of Chicago. But what's tied to that is that our own tax dollars, a billion TIF dollars are going to create this playground for the rich in Lincoln park. You know? So I think Mm -hmm. if it was just the relocation of a, of a company, it would be one thing, but this is taking it to a whole nother level.
1: So, for context, so General Iron had a plant that is where the proposed and now approved Lincoln Yards development is, and they're moving their facility to the southeast side. Correct? Yes. Right?
0: Yes, and the developer is Sterling Bay. Um, this is the site of a a big action that the the teachers uh, during. Um, Their fight for, for better wages and all the rest of it a couple of years ago was taken to their door and saying, like, look, like the city cannot be giving these tax dollars to these developers. And at the same time, you know, closing schools, not investing in our communities, closing mental health clinics like this is unacceptable. So we're seeing this and it's no surprise that teachers at George Washington High School are taking also, a leadership role in the organizing that is currently happening here in the southeast side of Chicago. There's a new group that was just formed called the Southeast Side Educators Against General Iron. It's made up of teachers from this community who either live here or work here or both. This um, metal shredder is going to be a massive, massive operation. Uh, it's not just like your regular one of the metal, metal shredder, they're expecting over 600 more trucks a day coming in and out of the neighborhood
1: um, I don't even know what a run-of-the-mill metal shredder would look like so this is already like <laughs> times times 20 in my brain like oh yeah you know I what I pictured is like an office paper shredder is where my brain went so I think we got to scale up a little bit scale
0: up um, this is the kind of metal, metal <laughs> shredder that shreds vehicles just to kind of put it in, in perspective damn.
2: <laughs> that does not put it in perspective that takes it away <laughs> a shredding <laughs> a vehicle is not an easy image just to, to, it looks to scary accept. it's like a lot of, yeah, lot of okay. big cranes yeah. you know yeah.
0: it looks like like dinosaurs you know like big yeah. cranes moving moving the stuff around and and we already have seven metal shredders in this community so i think that's why this campaign in particular um is really just you know hitting hard because there's just no way to slice it, you know?
1: Ironically, <laughs>
2: considering
0: that's what- <laughs> That's what they do, right? <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> so one so <laughs> thing you, you mentioned, um, and I'm, I'm interested in how this is strengthening this current fight. You mentioned this community-driven and source data and a trajectory I think we've like- Observed or studied in doing this show over the years is this process from experience to knowledge and knowledge to information. Um, and what we see is that usually institutions uh, dismiss or do not take seriously or validate experiential knowledge and so it's this usually this grassroots process it sounds very similar to what you're saying of like there are people who do work whether it's in relationship to journalism or to organizing or to us a school project where they take the things that we know right like we know we are being poisoned no one gives a shit but there's, you know, it is it is in, in embodied that we are experiencing this. Um, but then there's this process of transferring that knowledge to information. So I would love to get how that process worked for y'all because I hear it coming through. Because I also think people don't know. I'm sure listening like what pet coke is and what manganese is. They sound bad, <laughs> and like I've read about yes. it. And obviously, know because I want to be intentional in this conversation. But without. Wanting to have this conversation, I would have no understanding of what those things are.
0: No, totally. Um, that's a great question. So, uh, Pet Coke is a byproduct of processing oil. And in particular, in the southeast side, we're right next to White in Indiana, where it's one of the largest um, refineries in the Western Hemisphere. It is now processing tar sands that are coming from Alberta, Canada. And so that means there's a lot more pet coke now because it's um, this carbon rich material that uh, just produces way more waste. So then Mm -hmm. BP um, invested about four or five billion dollars to be able to to process these tar sands. And we had a lot of this waste uh, was being stored on the banks of the Calumet River. And people in the community started noticing it. I had a neighbor who recently immigrated from Mexico, and she's like, It's so strange. I clean my house and I wipe and I'm like dusting, and like the dirt in America is just so black. It's just so dark. And she's like, you know, our dirt was more clay, you know, reddish color. And I was like, Yeah, honey, that is not dirt. You know, that is tech <laughs> hope that is flying into your house. And then, you know, we start talking about it, you know, and. I had just had my baby. There was other moms and and aunties in in the neighborhood and we met um, Christine Wally, who's from this neighborhood and teaches at MIT. And she was part of this group that um, would do DIY um, data collection. And she gave us a kit that was this big red weather balloon that you fill up with helium and you tie this cheap camera inside of like an ocean spray uh, juice container that we cut up and used rubber bands. We used a little pebble from the floor oh, to, to put the camera on continual shutter, tethered it to a thousand foot rope, let it fly willy nilly. And it would just take pictures and pictures and pictures. And then we would bring it back down and then uh, stitch those pictures together. And that's how we found pet coke that had fell onto the frozen river. And it looked like mm. someone shook like a pepper shaker above the the river mm. and we had our own data. And that started a chain reaction where even the attorney general had to intervene and issue citations to this company. And it kind of blew a campaign up because the media got involved and because the owners of the company um, where the pet Coke was being stored is owned by the Coke brothers. It was, it was just even more, more sensational, you know? So like, it was like the perfect storm here. So Dick Durbin helped get a air monitor and this air monitor. Well, yes, it picked up the pet coat and there was laws. I mean, now there are new laws thanks to all the advocacy that happened and the activism that happened here no more pet coke is allowed to be stored outdoors.
1: So that's, a, that's a legitimate win, correct? Totally. I mean, our, those yeah. air
0: monitors were up still after the pet coke piles were removed. And uh, even though the company is still there and they have now changed their mode of operation, the, the pet coke comes in on a train, it dumps directly into a hopper onto the barge, and then it, it goes out and it's all covered. And, it's not perfect, <laughs> but um, it
1: still goes somewhere. It still goes yeah. somewhere.
0: It's used as, um, like, a fuel to make cement and other things like that. Um, but the the point I think is that you know the there is opportunities for everyday people to one you know use their collective genius to collect this data to put it together in a way that it just makes it really hard to ignore. But those air monitors that ended up going up um, due to this fight picked up something even worse. It picked up manganese that was also being stored outdoors. It's an ingredient to make steel. And this company, ironically, had a huge issue in Ohio. And the principals couldn't understand why, if they're using the same curriculum, one part of the, the city was scoring so much lower And it was discovered that those schools were um, close to uh, one of the the sites where they were processing manganese and they were being impacted. It it messes with your IQ, messes with your balance. The same researchers that helped get that uh, campaign going are now working with us here that's been really great that we've been able to connect with those groups. But what kills me, what kills me, is that the EPA was investigating this company in Ohio, and they never thought to say, "Let's see where else they're working with manganese. Maybe mm. if they have, you know, facilities in other places, it's also happening there." Never.
2: That's not even like a terrible drive either. It's <laughs> not like it's Ohio to Albuquerque. Like Ohio to Chicago is like kind of an understood <laughs> yes. little trip you can make real quick. <laughs> That's a
1: Southwest <laughs> flight. For Real. Yeah, reg- you're in the regional terminal. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's like in the old days when someone would like get in trouble and they would just like move to a different town and get a new name and then just like act like nothing had even happened. It's well, funny
0: that yeah. you men- you mentioned that Daniel because um that is actually happening here. A lot of the companies uh who that are working along the river rack up lots of violations and then they change names and then they had they get to start all over again. And also the way to track like who owns what, now the rest of it, I thought I was just like dense and couldn't understand, you know, like I would do my own research. and I'm like, why can't I find it? But then actual researchers <laughs> who do this for a living were like, oh no, it's flawed. The way that the state, you know, has information available about these companies. Um, some of it is in PDFs that they have online that you have to know exactly what you're searching for to be able to find it. Yeah. And then the Cook County assessor's office here has bad in- information also that, that I know they're working on to, to improve, uh, to find out who owns these properties. And then the inspectors who have to to go out and inspect, like, you know, they're, they're just not all talking and, and there's yeah. no transparency, yeah. but who does it benefit who benefits from this kind of yeah. crap?
1: <laughs> like <laughs> Yeah. No, and bureaucracy as a tool for like profit and villainy is not a that's not a new game, you know, if you obscure it that way.
2: Yeah. I mean this is a a real great point to to pull the pin. What? Well, also, I think acknowledging, I think also the importance of communal based information again, because not only is it more rooted in experience, but the governments and these corporations aren't even effectively gathering their own information. And I think that's really important to know, because usually there is no like pressure or or any type of outside eyes looking at it.
0: Well, Damien, that is so important, because when they do get caught, then the fines that they pay, they're not even punitive for them they just keep paying the fine it's just like a cost of operating of doing business it's just another thing they right. you know
2: yeah it doesn't disincentivize no no that that's really an important part too um and so i think that's important is to name the like active malfeasance right like that this harm is not just happening passively like oh we're producing and then like, oops, like there's a there's a byproduct, right? Like that word is like very passive or like runoff is kind of the way we think about it. And so I would love from your experience, whether it's the ways in which they actively obfuscate the harms that they are creating and covering them up and, and to, to, to hide them or when there is organizing work to make better outcomes or more healthier environments, the ways in which these institutional factors like impede folks organizing for the things they need.
0: Totally. I mean, I think one thing because um this community is overburdened, I mean you could like throw a rock and you'll hit a polluter. Like there's so just so many <laughs> violators here.
1: And and that rock in and of itself is probably toxic.
0: It's probably ta- yeah, it's, probably not, a <laughs> it's
1: probably not a rock.
0: It's probably some kind of slag or something.
1: Yeah. you um, could sling some slag and you'd hit a polluter. Yeah,
0: dude. <laughs> and you know, they just kind of um say like, oh no, that's not us that's the people across the river because they're doing this or it can't be us because the wind blows this way and so it has to be them and so they're just always blaming each other and then there's nobody really monitoring that like a lot of these companies get away um with not having to Put their monitors up, we actually fought like part of the rules for not storing Peco here either is that now you know bulk storage facilities have to have you know monitors. um uh, the only thing is that the monitors that they put up are only collecting information for p m ten so particulate matter it's bigger and we need them to be able to start monitoring for pm 2.5 which are the smaller particles that we know that when you breathe them in they cause some serious damage and those are not even being monitored you know so like we've resorted to well fine then we're going to do our own health studies we're not going to wait for you to do it that and it's something that is not even being stewarded by our own department of health or the the state department of health like it's happening because activists, moms, aunties, grandmas are connecting with those researchers and trying to get that data ourselves and then use that. Um, You know, we do have some really awesome allies, you know, folks like the National Resource Defense Council. I have to give a shout out to Malia Gertzma and also Keith Harley from Kent Law School and and Nancy Loeb from the um, Environmental clinic at Northwestern University who are three lawyers who really have just um worked so well with us and have been able to um help us you know work on the 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 policy you know like writing the the different policies suggesting different policy like how do we take these shared and um just live experience and turn it into a new policy that is going to be protective of our, of our health. And we really could not have done it without their help. It's been a great partnership.
1: Mm. So I, I, I hear that partnership and I, I hear the process of that gathering data and then having that in your arsenal as you continue the fight. What struck me so much when you were talking about blaming each other, obscuring, not gathering the right data de- is like, you know i'm a fan of a nuance anyone who listens to the show knows that but there is something so like <laughs> it blatantly like cartoonishly villainous about this right the idea of we're going to concentrate the polluters in one area and then ignore the needs of the people who live side by side that is like i think sometimes we simplify things but that is very simple <laughs> and i could imagine when it when it feels like that that there's some uh, powerlessness that can seep in, despite the fact that you've demonstrated over and over again, the power that the people who live there actually do have. So for you, how do you think about that opposition, if at all, or is there another framework that you use that keeps you active, motivated, community-based rather than like, you know, I, I think about the the kind of parallel is the difference between like yelling at police, the police headquarters building versus like building with the people who live around it right this like yelling up or talking in circle so yeah how do you think about that kind of like oppositional fight against them like yeah like i'm picturing like the monopoly man basically Mm-hmm.
0: no i think um we just want a whole new game right <laughs> right we don't even want to play monopoly anymore we want to which is how monopoly. i always <laughs> felt
1: playing monopoly
0: <laughs> <laughs> i think the the new game would be like sustain monopoly you know? <laughs> like where, <laughs> there, is where no jail, have, no
1: there is no jail no private property
2: but we're keeping free park <laughs> yeah, exactly
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're <keeping food> <laughs> Absolutely. That's the game I want to play. You know, it's like, where are we going to put the hospital? You know, we're a neighborhood that is medically underserved. You know, where are we going to uh, put our, our schools? How are we going to enjoy these natural areas? You know, create jobs that are not going to make us sick. You know, those are all the the things that we hear from people Here in the community, who are joining this fight, and and then guess what? We have the opportunity to because the city has like well, the city and the state, and there's like all these planning initiatives that are happening. You know, the mayor announced invest Southwest. There's an industrial quarter modernization initiative. There's the international port district master plan. There are other ideas that you know uh, the University of of Illinois and Chicago is doing with great cities Institute um, to bring like a river walk along the Calumet river. You know, there's um, all kinds of plans, you know, happening where we need community voices to really be there um, and make the, the case for the kind of uh, neighborhood that we want, bring our own vision. Uh, There's a wonderful group called uh, Alliance for the Southeast that has done these visioning events And we have that information and we want to see it, you know, implemented in all of these plans. And we want the city to be working to make sure that, you know, that we are bringing equity and that we are bringing, you know, diversity and inclusion and justice into all of these plans that are happening simultaneously that have not slowed down, even though we're in the middle of a pandemic. So how are we going to do that? I feel like that is a role that I am filling right now to make sure that it, we make those processes accessible to people currently. And then um, for us to like just live our best lives in in using those spaces that, you know, 20, 30 years ago people had fought to restore, you know, like the Hegwish Marsh, like Indian Ridge Marsh, like Big Marsh. Um, so that we can use those spaces ourselves, you know, and, and make them part of our everyday, everyday life. Uh, the more people use those natural spaces, the Burnham Greenway, Calumet Park, uh, Eggers Grove, the harder it's going to be to put some polluter next to them, you know, and I think um, that's the inspiring thing about, you know, working with a lot of the, the young people that we're working with that have had summer jobs in conservancy, that have included biking in the protest. You know, so there's like a big group of 20, 30 bikes that joined the marchers, marching for black lives, you know, in our neighborhood or marching against General Iron or marching to the older Woman's house, being active and saying, like, you know, I'm not gonna be afraid to ride my bike and to walk in a community that was literally built for trucks. We're literally taking back the streets um, through those efforts. And that's what we're going to keep doing, you know, and resisting. We're barely holding the line. We're not winning right now, but we are definitely doing a lot of work to expose the way that the system has been working against us. And then um, there's so many young people that like, so this started like 10 years ago when we were presenting in grammar schools and high schools that have now graduated college and have made commitments to come back to their neighborhood to get jobs and work on these issues of environmental justice to run for office you know and i think that is how we're flipping the script in the on the southeast side and ins- inspiring communities all across the great lakes mm.
1: yeah
2: so i have to before I ask my last question, I have to offer some gas or some some affirmative praise. We're talking about such a toxic dynamic and situation, but the way in which your story and your communal experience is framed and expressed makes it actually feel really beautiful. Um, and so just like that as an entry point of like, I, you know, I hear you saying, you know, that that we're not winning and that you've lost people, but I am really inspired. And I think your work is so important, particularly like your community's vision being heard and acknowledging the fact that your community is being excluded and all of these air quote plans is such an important fight for all of us because we say this language of like centering the marginalized. Um, and as a community, like on the map, like people literally don't know that the Southeast side is a part of Chicago, right? Like it is literally a physically spatially marginalized space where there was this plan to concentrate pollution in a way that has no consideration of human beings. And so, you know, for this space where you can look down the lake and like you can see the smoke rising uh, to hear this counter story and this counter narrative of the resilience and of the, the, the life sustaining work that's happening um, is, is really Really inspiring, and I really feel it should be much more central in our understanding of justice. So, thank you, first, for, for sharing these experiences. And my last question. Thank you so much. Yes, we we don't we don't give kind of, the room for people to
1: accept the praise, though. We give the praise, <laughs> but then we just move right on. So You're yeah, gonna no, have no, to sit no, with just, that later. Just sit at it. Just
2: sit at it. Just sit at it. Because uh, because it really is beautiful. Thank
1: you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank,
2: thank you. you. That
0: means a, that means a lot.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so my last question connects to kind of where we started with of you saying, like, in this time, the harm we are centering is like public health or the destruction of public health. And in hearing you talk, I thought about an intersection when we talk about environment that usually doesn't get discussed, right? Like we talk about the the polluter or the people that are making us sick or the, the systems and processes that are making us sick. But then on the back end, the system that's supposed to respond to that is also in shambles and driven by profit and really is not meeting the needs of the people. And so in this fight for environmental justice in your community that are having all these health consequences, is our like health system coming up in conversation as a part of our environment or as a part of the harm of like we are having these destructions to our body and we don't have enough hospitals and, you know, the insurance and the Medicaid, all Absolutely. of this is done in a way that is killing people. Uh, how is your community like talking through that intersection that I didn't even think about until hearing some of these stories?
0: Well, you know, um a couple of years ago, we joined the Illinois Poor People's Campaign. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this is uh, Reverend Barber um, to really call out, you know, these injustices. And one of those things is that um, especially communities like ours, like we've taken up uh, the Southeast Side Coalition to ban pet coke has taken up the fight for universal health care. So that is something that is really important to us because. If you have a community that is immigrant that's low income that can't afford Obamacare and, and all the rest of it, um, how are they going to get healthy? you know like here if you you know get like a cancer diagnosis or something like that, we know people who've lost their homes you know because of the the, the medical bills you know so definitely this fight for environmental justice also includes, You know, the fight for universal health care. It also is part of uh, fighting for ending mass incarceration, because once people are let out from jail, what are they going to come home to? A polluted neighborhood, you know, after so many of the rights have been taken away. Also the right to breathe clean air is taken away. So that is part of our fight, the fight for Black lives, the fight against police brutality, making sure that the money is taken out of politics so that people who are here in this neighborhood can represent themselves authentically, you know, so that we can have elected officials that are not bought out by corporate interests. You know, those are all of our fights. They are all connected and That's the only way we we will win. And we will not win um, if we have environmental justice, but we still have, you know, all of our Black brothers and sisters locked up in jail and police, you know, attacking us um, willy-nilly the the way that we have all witnessed. Um, And it will be doing a disservice to our community if we were not connecting those issues, especially during this time you know, with the uprisings that we have seen during this pandemic, like those two things have gelled together for us and have been part of the the call for our liberation. And I think is really important that um, that doesn't go unheard.
1: Hmm. All right, last last piece. Part of the goal of the show is to bring it back to elevate energy. Who is asking as they enter this next chapter of their work? What are the lessons from people who are doing on-the-ground environmental justice work uh, that they should be taking into their meetings and their initiatives and their programs? So either for them specifically or usually it's it's more helpful for like them and other organizations kind of in that same position. What advice, lessons, messages do you want to make sure they know and, and what should they be doing differently if they want to be... Supporting and contributing to and aligned with the work that is so desperately needed on the southeast side and everywhere?
0: Uh, that's a really good question, and something that we have thought a lot about. Um, you know, a lot of the decisions for organizations are being made in, in the boardrooms, and we need those conversations to be taken to our front stoops, you know, our front porches, you know, where the community is. And making sure that, you know, when we're talking about, you know, the impacts to communities that people from those communities are at the table so that people are not speaking for them, that they have the opportunity to tell their own stories and that they're not used to just talk about how terrible their situation is. And then they turn to like a white male expert for the solution, you know, that those (laughs) solutions are also part of our conversations that we're having here in the the community level Um, because that feels really awful to to be invited all the time to talk about how terrible your neighborhood is (laughs) and then they turn to somebody else to talk about the solutions Mm. Um, Mm. I think um, we need to make sure that um, impacted folks are well resourced so that they can uh, participate in these opportunities you know to talk about what's happening in their community and the solutions I I think that usually it's like the usual suspects, you know, there's like, you know, Peggy and myself and, you know, Kim from Lavejo and Juliana, we get tapped a lot. But there are so many unsung heroes that do this work um, and we need to make more space for these emerging leaders to also be at the table. And because there's so many tables, <laughs> there's more tables than there are us. <laughs> And and also, you know, making sure that we have um, opportunities for the young people to have meaningful jobs, you know, to be interning at these organizations and to have people uh, who have been, you know, fighting this since they were wee ones, little tiny kids, you know, to be able to have an opportunity to do meaningful work in these organizations on issues of environmental justice, of conservancy, of flooding, of lead service line replacements, like bringing those young people um, and giving them the opportunity to, to be part of the work uh, is really key. If we want a, a movement that's going to be sustainable, we have to really think outside the box. And even though, you know, we, we may not be as sophisticated <laughs> as, you know, somebody just graduated from who knows where, um, we
1: bring a, quite a bit to the table. What a way to end the series with the brilliant and wonderful Olga Bautista.
2: Yeah, it, it was a really impactful conversation, and I hope everyone listening like recognizes how important this work and this fight is, and how these communal-driven environmental justice efforts need to be central to all of our movement work, particularly against forms of state violence. I think one of the strands that's really come through through this whole series
1: is sometimes we get wrapped up, at least in the telling of organizing work, in a story of wins and losses. And it's really important to elevate the, no pun intended, the actual like wins the same way, like here they got this pet coke removed uh, from their community. But so often we lose sight of this kind of like longitudinal fight, right? There is this urgency right now and there has to be this understanding that there's a transformation that's needed on so many levels, national, state, communal, personal, in our choices. All of it is important. All of it is valid. And that, you know, for people who who are trying to do this work better, listening to the people who are doing that work on multiple levels and are embodying it as best they can is a really, really important starting place and kind of continual reminder uh, as we try to, you know,
2: fight this truly uphill battle. Yeah, so this series has actually been helpful for me because I know, like for many people, climate change as a global phenomenon just feels so big um, and the the harmful actors at play seem so untouchable. Uh, but going through these conversations and seeing the ways in which intentional local facing work are ways to address the entire system and to connect the dots and the ways in which these different focuses and efforts are overlapping in terms of growing food or stopping a polluter or housing people, right? Like that all of this is in part of our environment. Um, and there's a way in which the conversation of environment has been like shifted away from our day-to-day lives. Like we talk about it in these like graph decade by decade notions of like CO2 levels, which are obviously really important, but environment is part of our day-to-day experience and part of the ways in which people interact with each other. Uh, And so I've really, really been fed uh, by hearing these stories of how the work starts at home for most people. um, And it's really elemental about the basics of life. And,
1: you know, it's not just the macro graphs and then the individual choices. There's this one step past that, which is the communal work. That dichotomy is so paralyzing when it comes to climate change, because we have this illusion of being able to make the choices that will, quote, save the world, even though we know that 80% of the pollutants come from these same 10 corporations in the military. But there is this other level that doesn't come from what do I as a consumer do? It comes from what do I as a community member do? Uh, And there is some real substantive power on that level. Um, So it's been beautiful to learn about all the ways that that's happening, you know, simultaneously in our city, in our state and around the world. So I think we should get the hell on out of here. It's been such a joy. Thank you again to Elevate Energy for supporting this project this year as part of their 20th anniversary. Um, you can subscribe to climate change makers just search the name in your podcast app also subscribe to ergo a-i-r-g-o on your podcast app we're at ergo radio i'm at ergo kiss i'm at damon underscore a-f and thanks for tuning in as we showcase the people changing our city environment and world for the more equitable and
2: creative much love to the people peace